Hello, and welcome again to another podcast of The Conservative Historian. This one entitled, The Virus Attacking Our Republic. The date, May 2021st, and my name is Bell Avis. Back in the day when my kids were little and our eating habits bordered on the, well, the atrocious, they would enjoy cocoa pebbles in the morning, french fries at lunch, and corn on the cob in the evenings. This last one was not quite so egregious as the first two. This food selection was a diet entirely unknown for a European, African, or an Asian before the 16th century. Also new to the Eastern Hemisphere was the peanut. But of course, thanks to the land bridge across what is now the Bering Sea, there were people in the Western Hemisphere on hand to bring the peanut to domestication. You probably thought when you read the title to this piece, you were thinking that this, well, like every other story over the past year, was going to be about COVID. Well, this is about diseases and microbes are part of it. And I will definitely talk of COVID in the future. But for right now, this is about the humble peanut. Well, that and the antibodies that could harm our country and kill the host if we let it. A study conducted by the Anthropology Department of the University of Georgia states, quote, The archaeological records support the peanuts cultivation between 3000 and 2500 BCE in Peruvian desert oases. The cultivated peanut was first likely domesticated in the valleys of the Paraguay and Parana rivers in the Chaco region of South America. The plant itself is believed to have been originally domesticated by predecessors of the Arawak-speaking peoples who now live in its homeland. But the first written account of the crop, remember in uh, pre-Columbian times there wasn't any official writing or as such as we understand it, so the first written account of the crop is found with the Spanish entry into Hispaniola in 1502, where the Arawak cultivated under the name of the Manny. Records from Brazil around 1550 showed the crop was known there with the name Mandubi. Early Spanish and Portuguese accounts record the presence of crop throughout the West Indies and South Africa, unquote. In one of those strange twists of history, the peanut first made its way to Africa, and then as African slaves were brought to North America, the peanut came with them to that continent. Peanut production steadily grew in the first half of the 19th century, and peanuts became prominent, especially after the Civil War, when Union soldiers found they liked them and took them home. But both armies, Union and Confederate, subsisted on this food source because it was high in protein. According to the National Peanut Board, quote, their popularity grew in the late 1800s when P.T. Barnum's circus wagons traveled across the country and vendors called hot roasted peanuts to the crowds. Soon street vendors began selling roasted peanuts from carts and peanuts also became popular at, yes, you guessed it, baseball games. While peanut production rose during this time, peanuts were still harvested by hand, leaving stems and trash in the peanuts. Thus, poor quality and a lack of uniformity kept down demand for peanuts. Well, until recently. Unquote. So, peanuts. Huh, Bell? What's going on here? Normally when I go into the conservative historian, I expect two things. I want conservatism, and I especially want political history. But keep in mind that there's all kinds of history. In addition to the obvious, political and military, which you get a lot of here, there's social history, religious history economic history, 
and yes, even agricultural history as well. So, am I attempting to expand the roster of histories upon which this sits? No. Bear with me. I'm getting to the point very closely. The question now arises, when the peanut, a cherished staple of the American diet, began to threaten people's lives. In a 2015 article for Mike, entitled, When the Hell Did Everyone Become Allergic to Peanuts?, Author John Levine writes, quote, Like all allergies, peanut sensitivity results from an incorrect immune response. I'm going to repeat that, an incorrect immune response. Unlike most allergies, however, peanut-related reactions routinely kill dozens each year. And even lesser cases can result in hives, itching, wheezing, coughing, shortness of breath, vomiting, and fainting. Today, the standard procedure for a severe peanut attack requires a shot of epinephrine delivered immediately through the thigh in the form of a large syringe, popularly known as an epinin. The numbers have doubled in the, per, in the past 10 years. Dr. Julia Kirikos, an internist at Hudson Allergy and clinical instructor of medicine at Columbia University, told Mike, I don't think there is just one answer. And according to Kirikos, one possible explanation is the so-called hygiene hypothesis. And that is the idea goes that U.S. children were exposed to more everyday bacteria and viruses in the past, which may have stimulated healthy immune responses. Today, by contrast, with ever more significant advances in hygiene, the theory goes that the immune system has less to do and lashes out at more banal things like peanut proteins in an attempt to stay relevant. Kirikos and other experts said peanut allergies were less prevalent in developing countries partly for this reason. We're not growing up in families where there are six children and living on farms and having exposure, said Kirikos, unquote. As little as 200 years ago, over 80% of Americans and numbers more like 90% in other parts of the world were farmers. In other words, the type of prosperity encountered by Americans in which today less than 2% of Americans have to farm has led to this peanut situation. It should also be noted that in 1820, or roughly 200 years ago, you would have been slightly different from today, the farming that we know. No tractors, no combines, no threshers. The John Deere plow, invented in 1834, and the McCormick Reaper, invented in 1837, were both in the future. And of course, in the South, the exhausting chore of bringing in cotton harvests was accomplished with slave labor. When there were real things for antibodies to attack, real threats to the human host, they were the difference between life and death. But peanuts are not a mortal threat, or at least they were not until now. According to the Life Science blog, quote, antibodies are specialized Y-shaped proteins that bind like a lock and key to the body's foreign invaders, whether they are viruses, bacteria, fungi, or parasites. They are the search battalion of the immune system's search and destroy system, tasked with finding an enemy and marking it for destruction, unquote. But of course, they're not really battalions in the sense of an army. Though history sometimes conveys the opposite. Human armies, or the soldiers who constitute them, have cognitive abilities behind their actions. Though, as noted, sometimes they are seldom in evidence. 
antibodies simply react. Humans think, or at least one would hope. In a time of unprecedented prosperity compared to the previous 4,900 years of civilization, the challenge of our society in the United States is to distinguish between those genuine threats to our nation health and those, like peanuts, that will not cause mortal danger, but the reaction to them could. The challenge is that those within our country would create hazards and stoke fears either from ignorance or personal aggrandizement using concepts and ideas that are not genuinely mortal perils. From the time the Chinese first began to organize civilization along the Yellow River and the Sumerians began building city-states, there was the use of the other. For all we know this could, well, predate even these first civilizations. Perhaps out on a prairie somewhere in Africa, early Homo sapiens were disciplining their children with stories about how misbehavior will lead to capture by the Neanderthals. Regardless of its beginning, every society has used this concept to its advantage. But history is replete with the other actually being a threat. The Romans in the times of Gaius Marius were not wrong to fear incursions from the north. One previous invasion of Italy had led to the sack of the city of Rome in 387 BCE. Indians were not wrong to fear the increasing presence of the British in post-Mogul times as a nation that would use a considerable wealth of their country for British ends, and not necessarily at all for India. And the British themselves they were not wrong in fearing invasions of their island from the Spanish in 1588, the French in 1804, or the Germans in 1940. Those were real threats. The British Navy and the Army were the antibodies to try to fight off this disease that would invade their island. But as noted, the problem is knowing the difference between the real and the fabrication. One Roman Cato the censor used a non-existent threat from a thoroughly defeated Carthage to raise the city in 139 BCE. The United States itself used the destruction of a battleship, the USS Maine, in a Cuban harbor as a pretext for a war with Spain in 1898, even though the evidence of Spanish destruction of the ship was flimsy. The result was, however brief, America became an imperial power. Today, we are faced with a host of issues, and our challenge is to distinguish those areas, the real bacteria, the real virus threat to our body, and what is the peanut allergy, something that, in the end, is not as harmful as the attackers would insist. At one point in human history, there were three significant threats, and not coincidentally, they matched the horsemen in John of Patmos' pantheon of weird but explainable figures. These are famine, war, and disease. I have covered off of these in previous podcasts, but suffice it to say, these are not the existential threats they were 200 or even 100 years ago. And yes, that includes COVID. But there still exists in our psyche the need, a natural inclination towards finding new others or new threats. Just as those antibodies are seeking new enemies to find, so are elements within our republic, whether they exist or not. The right certainly has its concerns that include, let's say, immigration or the prominence of big tech. And though I am indeed a person of the right, I would argue that these are issues that need to be addressed and managed and controlled 
rather, though, than germs that need to be fought and annihilated. Immigration is not as simple as open borders or closed ones. Even a controlled immigration process would lead to voting blocks that might turn red states, such as Texas purple, and give way to a permanent Democratic majority. Except for FDR actually had that majority. At one point, FDR controlled nearly 60% of the Senate and 67% of veto-proof majority within the House of Representatives. And somehow, the Republicans came back. Additionally, the election of 2020 showed that in places like Florida, the Latina vote is up for grabs. Maybe just a little bit more energy into persuasion and a little less demonization is in order on the immigration issue. And how exactly do the United States, with nearly 50 million retirees, expect to pay for the welfare state we have created without imported labor? Immigration is an issue, but not the existential threat that an antibody should attack. But one area of right-wing concern is a mortal threat, and that, that threat, is the imposition of government control over vast swaths of our society, our culture, and our commerce. Why is this a threat? Because we have seen these systems tried again and again and again throughout history, and it never ends well. The left seeks to accomplish governmental control through four levers, and these are four levers of thought. These imagined threats, similar to our antibodies, imagining that peanuts are the danger, and they include classism, sexism, environmentalism, and shocking, I know, racism. The concept of classism in the United States is mainly illusory. One of the core tenets of this is, is that a poor person cannot become wealthy and a wealthy person cannot become poor. Well, remember the fabulously wealthy Kennedys? Not one currently graces the Forbes 400, nor is one likely to find a Vanderbilt or a Carnegie among them. Who comprises the top? Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. There is obviously a correlation between wealth and big tech. I mean, after all, three out of the four of the people I just named all made their money off of big tech. And this represents a lack of diversity compared to a comparable list in the late 1800s. Back then, railroads were a very considerable source of wealth. But so was steel, Carnegie, petroleum, Rockefeller, minerals, Frick, or banking, Morgan. But the other thing that ties all these figures together, the the Buffets and the Gates, they're the first in their families to make the list. Now, there are assorted Waltons on there as well, but these are only the second generation after Sam Walton's death in 1992, and none show the promise of spinning their inheritances into an endless future of wealth and power. In Britain, certain families, like the Percys and the Howards, could keep themselves at the top of the firmament for centuries, primarily through their land holdings. That is classism. It is not the same in the U.S., especially with the vow taken by many of the figures I have just named to give away their wealth upon their deaths. Unfortunately, the legacy they leave is that of the Ford Foundation or the Mellon one, uber-liberal philanthropy so different from their founder's vision that if the tax and government-averse Andrew Mellon were alive today, he'd be struck dead all over again by what is being wrought in his name. Classism is the illusion. But the next three have enough residue of reality to be somewhat of an issue, albeit not exalted enough as they are by the left. Women have been discriminated against, 
There obviously has been sexism in this republic. After all, for the first 150 years of our time, they did not even have the vote. But sexism is always a bit trickier. The challenge here is twofold. First, women are achieving the highest rungs in society today. Recently, Jane Frazier became the first woman to run a big six banking empire. Judging by public appearances, we will have our first female president, well, probably before 2022 comes to an end. Who are the two most polarizing figures in the House of Representatives, right or left? Why, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Marjorie Taylor Greene. There is also, perish the thought, a genuine desire on the part of women to want to raise children, and this often takes them out of the workforce. And this instinct, though present in men, is greater in women. Oh boy, if a liberal read this, I can hear the shrieks and wails from miles away. Yes, men and women are different. There it is. I've said it. Yes, there is an instinct honed over millions of years for females to want to be with their children. And no, this is not a construct of the patriarchy to maintain power and privilege over women. Sexism is an issue, but it is not the one for the antibodies to attack. Like sexism, environmentalism has some genuine concerns as well. Climate change, I'm going to say this too. Climate change is not a hoax, obviously, but rather part of the geological aspect of the Earth's history. I am writing this on a 70-degree day in a location that was once covered by a glacier a quarter of a mile tall. The Earth is constantly changing. But the real question is, do humans affect climate? I believe we do to a degree, and there is evidence to support this. But again, what is the difference between the bacteria and the peanut? When environmentalists resort to doomsday predictions, never borne out, and rely on a 16-year-old Swedish teenager with almost no scientific training, one questions their seriousness, not their sanity. The other day, our nation was treated to one of our 435 representatives, Katie Porter of California, of course, asking Greta Thunberg not on how a teenager may feel about climate change, at least she would have some, some opinions there, but what about she, Porter, the mom, should tell her daughter about climate change fears, no doubt instilled by the mother. So here we have a mother who is also a, a representative of the great state of California asking a 16-year-old for parental advice, a member of Congress. This is not seriousness. And finally, if they were genuinely circumspect about all of this, the environmentalists would bring the topic of nuclear power to the fore. It rarely does, which is the giveaway. That leads us to the left's best answer to a disease, in their mind, that is killing our society and needs to be fought with the antibodies of this nation. And of course, in the left's mind, every antibody is a giant governmental program. And this disease is systemic racism. And yet, the left's own attack against systemic racism has the potential within it to put Americans into aphylactic shock, the same kind of shock that the body feels when its antibodies attack wrongly peanuts as a threat. Actual discrimination, wherein an individual would claim superior to another based solely on the color of one's skin, does exist. It has for century. And the other human instinct towards victimhood and grievance and blaming problems on the other will always be with us. 
And the reason that the left uses racism is that one once in our nation's history, it was a virus, arguably the most significant such organism. It led to a war that saw the deaths of 600,000 souls and nearly split the country in two. Slavery was actual bacteria that needed to be fought by the antibodies of the time. And those antibodies consisted of, let's say, a William Lloyd Garrison, or it consisted of a Frederick Douglass, and later, an Abraham Lincoln, and later, a million Union soldiers liberating the slaves. But in the 1860s and the 1960s, our national antibodies attacked this scourge. And it was done in the middle part of the 20th century by antibody figures such as Thurgood Marshall, Martin Luther King Jr., and the civil rights legislation. But in the minds of the left, the antibodies failed. And thus we live today in a world of systemic racism. Right off the bat, here is one challenge I always ask about this systemic racism. Is the charge of American systems wielded to maintain racism real or not? And if it is real, are we to believe that entities such as the 600,000 strong police forces throughout the nation are in on this? Are we to believe that controllers of this system, the system that is part of the systemic racism, include Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, former consigliere to Barack Obama, or black, progressive Mayor Lori Lightfoot? Are these figures somehow in charge of a system, but somehow systemic racism exists anyway? Through the pernicious critical race theory, the left would impose on the nation a concept that the color of one's skin is the primary determinant of one's life. And this rejects a central tenet of conservatism that the power of an individual and the agency given in their lives is the true determinant. Every human being is born from genetic material inherited from their parents. They are then shaped by family, or lack thereof, by religion, by friends, by their community, and even their teachers. Experiences also shape them. The debate of nature versus nurture goes all the way back to Plato, who believed in the former, and to Aristotle, who postulated the latter. I have always thought it is a combination of both. LeBron James inherited incredible gifts. He is six foot eight, extremely strong, very fast, and his particular athleticism lends itself to basketball. But he is not the LeBron because of just his skills. The NBA is some of the finest athletes in the world, yet he wins because he has the desire, the focus, the intelligence, and the work ethic that others lack. Was that inherited? All of that? Did he learn these softer skills? It was both. LeBron James is not a great basketball player because he is tall or strong or smart or dedicated. But all of these attributes make LeBron James unique. And it is a shame that LeBron himself does not explain this distinction because in his Twitter utterings, he consigns himself to one aspect of his self, that he is black, which is, by the way, the least exciting thing about why we would watch him and why he commands a king's ransom in financial remuneration. But for the left, the individual is not to be extolled. Rather, it is far easier to create a movement around tribal, or in this case, racial identities. We took us 200 years for us to become a nation 
in which we would look at each other, as King would say, for the content of our character and not for the color of our skin. And yet the left would take us back, back to Jim Crow, and all the way back to a time in which a man was judged on the color of one's skin. In other words, to cure a disease upon which they see in their own minds, they would recreate the very disease that this nation was nearly torn apart to eliminate. We know the charges of police killing unarmed blacks is small, less than 20 per compared to the millions of police-to-public interactions. We know that individuals such as James can rise high in this country, and as the great Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina recently stated, we are not a racist country. And by the way, that sentiment was echoed by our future president, a woman of mixed Indian and black ancestry. But this does not change the fact that these issues, the peanuts in our discourse, can be used to deploy national antibodies in such a way that will eventually destroy our body. What are the real threats that need to be faced by our nation? The real things upon which we would deploy our antibodies? An untenable welfare state that will eventually sap the ability of our economy to function to the detriment of, well, everything. I noted in a previous podcast Nations fall as much due to economic calamity as they do to foreign ones. A rising China seeks to dominate as the new superpower and impose its system of a controlled economy and a suppression of individual rights on other subject nations. There is the continuing threat of Iran or North Korea providing nuclear materials to a terrorist group who in turn launches the weapon in the U.S. homeland. But in one form or another, these are economic or foreign threats, and there are answers for all. Yet there is another threat, and that is one of the attitudes we see in all of these leftist movements just covered. The threat is not classism, sexism, environmentalism, and no, not racism. The real danger, the real germ, the real bacteria killing our national body is the left's use of these concepts to aggregate power, to impose an overarching governmental solution to every issue from the cradle to the grave, to deliver our education infrastructure to the public teachers' unions and debunked critical race theory, to limit individual choice, to curb the power of our economic growth, to erode our culture, to concede power to foreign entities such as the Chinese, and replace the optimism that has been a hallmark of our republic with an attitude of anger and fear. That is the disease. We hope you have enjoyed this latest of the Conservative Historian Podcasts. If you wish to listen to other podcasts or see other materials, go to www.conservativehistorian.com. My name is Bell Avis.